Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Today we're going to be talking about well-being in the workplace and I'm joined by one of Software's software developers, Marcus Gardner. Hi Marcus. Hi there. How we feel at work has a huge impact on our performance and our social connectivity. We spend around a third of our lives at work, which is approximately 90,000 hours. Our experience at work will have a huge impact on our quality of life. This means, of course, there's a growing recognition of the importance of physical and mental well-being in the workplace. So here are some stats. The annual cost to employers is 33 to 43 billion due to sickness and staff turnover. 11.5 of all sickness absence is due to mental health conditions. And 45% of those who've taken time off for mental health reasons have given another reason to their employer. 300,000 people with long-term mental health problems lose their jobs every year. 89% of people who experience mental health issues did not disclose it to their manager. Eight out of ten managers do accept that employee well-being is their responsibility and attitudes are changing. So there is less stigma, but there is so much more that can be done. The flip side of this as well is that keeping people in work is so important to help them improve their mental health. So the problem circular in that mental health is stopping people from working, but actually not being able to work is then contributing to their mental health issues. So before we get stuck into the topic, could you give us a little introduction, Marcus, to who you are and maybe include a fun fact about yourself? Sure, no problem. So mental health is an issue that's very close to me and important to my heart. I have a lived experience of anxiety. So I spent uh, six months last year doing a project with the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust looking at digital solutions for workplace mental health care. So I traveled around the US and the UK. So in the US, I went to Boston, New York and San Francisco, interviewing digital mental health technology founders and academics and clinicians and advocacy bodies, trying to collate together the learnings that they had from answering this important question of how do we implement effective workplace solutions to improve mental health care of our staff. And I also published a report off the back of this fellowship. So my fun fact, after I'd completed the research project, I did a presentation last year. And my fun fact is that probably the most famous person I've met is the Duke of Cambridge, because I presented after him about workplace mental health care, which I think says a lot as to the current zeitgeist that's around mental health in the workplace and the importance of the topic that the royal family is is, is getting behind as well. Mm, fantastic. So where do employers start? Because as an employer, you, you know, everyone wants to do the best job by their staff, but there seem to be so many things to pursue. How do you know where to start? Well, I think the important thing to remember, you know, if you're doing a business initiative, the first thing to do is a needs assessment. And really with mental health care, it is no different. So I think the first place to start for employers is to understand what their employees want. One needs assessment I came across as part of the research was from the World Health Organization called the Wellbeing Five, which is where you ask your staff five wellbeing questions and then you can make comparisons about how, the, how other organizations and staff members rated their employers as to those five conditions. I think that's really the most important first step to understand what your staff actually want because it will really vary from a software company like software to a construction company to a school you know those are very different employment workplaces with different cultures and the first thing is to understand what your employees want through understanding what the current baseline is and what they desire out of mental health services from their employer. 
Mm. Are there broad areas to consider? So, for example, you know, we talked a lot in the introduction about mental health, but mental health isn't all of well-being. There's lots of other facets to it as well. Are there broad categories or does that, again, vary by workplace? I think the categories are broadly similar uh, for different workplaces. I would kind of encapsulate mental health itself and, and, and have three core areas that I focus on in mental health. But of course, there are other things that, that feed into our mental health in practice. Things like our financial well-being, our relationships, our life outside work and work. You know, all, all these blend together to, to create an overall uh, feeling of mental health and well-being in our lives. In terms of mental health specifically in the workplace, I always like to categorize it as three core areas. One is what's the level of mental health understanding in a workplace? Is there a nomenclature by which different staff can talk about mental health? Or is it a topic where people don't actually know what words to choose? And a part of that is, you know, that education process where different employees can agree on that one best approach and understanding of mental health. The second key category, as I see it in mental health care, is ensuring that people understand whether what they're experiencing is a mental health problem or not. Mm. Uh, I think one of the things I came across as part of the research that really astounded me was that clinicians again and again spoke of people going five plus years in workplaces without understanding whether what they're experiencing is normal or a mental health condition. Everyone experiences mental health. You know, that email arrives, it's really stressful. You've got a big meeting the next day or you can't quite pack what you want to into a working day. Everyone's experienced that. But what's the point in which your response to that and your resilience to that shows that there's a mental health condition that needs addressing as opposed to just a day-to-day experience of stress and the kind of fights and battles that exist in the workplace. And presumably what you're talking about there is people under-reporting their conditions. It's not that there's loads of people rocking up and going, oh, I got stressed with my email, I've got a mental health, and people going, no, 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 you haven't, go away. It's the, the exact opposite, that people aren't reporting it. That's exactly right. And I think that it's an experience that I had. I probably, and you know, there's a spectrum really with mental health where no matter who you are or what condition you're in, everyone goes through ebbs and flows and ups and downs. So it's a really hard spectrum to understand and I think a lot of people you know talking about that first bucket don't actually understand what mental health is so they don't know that not being able to sleep or feeling really stressed and that they can't perform at their best and having all these different conditions affect them they don't realize that that's mental health and there's a lot of kind of pull your socks up stiff upper lip kind of mentality but the main thing is you know you have people that um, struggle to understand how severe what they're experiencing is so there could be someone that's struggling to get out of bed in the morning and they don't actually understand that that's not an okay thing to be experiencing and that's something that there are practical solutions to address that with and we can do something about that and there's a journey to go on there and frustratingly what happens a lot of the time is people don't understand that's a mental health thing they just think they're being weak or their self-worth reduced and they spend months and in, in years or as, as I spoke to these clinicians about five plus years in, in this kind of condition of just about surviving in their workplace and you brought up one thing at the very beginning in terms of thinking about how it's kind of circular and the spectrum is kind of two-sided in terms of how much we do and our, our working lives and mental health and that's what we know from the research there's one end which is burnout which is I'm doing too much for what I can handle I'm, I'm struggling to fit everything in I feel like life has just become an ongoing treadmill that I can't possibly win and there's also rust out, which is the other end of the spectrum, which is I'm under-engaged, I'm not going to work, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not being able to, to use my creative talents or grow as a person, that can be just as damaging for mental health. And I think, obviously, of course, we talk about burnout the most in our 24-7 work, working culture, but rust out's also one, which is why the answer isn't always just actually don't go into work, that'll make you feel better. Sometimes that makes people feel worse. Mm. So I interrupted you there in the middle of the three areas. So the first is having a, a vocabulary for mental health. Yep. And the second, so mental health awareness and understanding. And the second is individuals being able to self-diagnose, at least to the extent of, do I have a mental health condition or not? And that's where I think actually the onus, there's also an onus to create a level of screening and diagnosis around that in a workplace context, because it's very hard to have self-perspective. If I'm in the work and I do a presentation, for example, it's very hard to understand how well that presentation went without external feedback, without watching a video back. It's no different for anything we do. And in terms of mental health, it's the same. Sometimes you do need an aspect of other people looking out for how their team members are doing as managers, for example, or having an online tool where you can take an assessment and understand what your current mental health condition is. So as you say, that second bucket is really screening and diagnosis and referral, either through the self, through managers or through an online tool great and so what's the third the third one is care delivery okay so this is the interesting one so they kind of flow together right you educate people they understand they can talk about mental health together and that flows to knowing when you have a mental health condition knowing when others have mental health conditions and then finally what do we do about that what's the care delivery point and really, that's all about having multiple frictionless access routes to care. There is no one answer of like, oh, and now we offer eight therapy sessions. So mental health complete, box ticked, everyone's going to be fine until the end of time now. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of flow I see within mental health, those three main buckets. Fantastic. So can you give us some small examples of what small businesses like Softwire are doing to support mental health? Sure. I think size of the business is an interesting point you kind of implicitly bring up there. I feel like small businesses probably have more control over their culture and more control over their staff at a kind of micro level. And there's different challenges in large businesses. But let's let's keep it talking about small for now. So there's a few examples that Softwire are doing at the moment that I know you'll be able to comment on as well. But I think it starts with having executive engagement in in mental health and that kind of flowing through down to grassroots support. So the first thing is as part of that education and signposting initiative, because that's really the first step, we need to make sure that the staff are engaged in that. We've done that needs assessment. We know, understand what the mental health problem is. And in small businesses, then we can begin to run initiatives to increase the level of education and the nomenclature that exists around mental health in our workplaces. So... For example, at Softwire, we've done lunch and learns, and we've had surveys about mental health that we've done with Mind, with the Workplace Wellbeing Index, which gets, again, gets people to reflect on mental health. And I think one of the initiatives we've done recently that I've really appreciated is we've opened up a mental health room, which has been a really interesting kind of point. And we recently had a survey on that by one of our colleagues, Sasha, uh, who think, I think has been on this podcast before, talking about diversity. She found that a huge number of people responded, over 40% of the company, and they had, there was a really high engagement rate with that mental health room. And the idea is really to have a space that at any point someone can step into and take a minute. And even if you don't use the room, it's that kind of marker in the sand of, yes, we do care about mental health. We do realise it's a thing. And that's a, that's a first step in the journey. And normalising it and making it acceptable for everyone to be able to go and use the room. Yeah, and I think one thing that's quite interesting about Softwire, and Softwire has a very unique culture that being mental health aware as Softwire is, is something that stems from a broader culture of trust in its staff. 
but I think from a cultural perspective, you right from when I joined, I could see people such as yourself, as well as others talking openly about mental health experiences that they'd had, or, or being open to talk about it, like the manager when I joined the project. Even in my interview, I talked about mental health, um, and we had... Uh, Andrew Thomas here who interviewed me you know engaging with me about mental health and he actually was the one that before I joined gave me the time to conduct this project so I think right from the start if it's an, a topic that's open and business leaders engage on that topic first it can be a very powerful kind of trickle-down effect and others engaging in the issue as well. It makes it very difficult if you are struggling with mental health challenges and no one is talking about it to know whether it's right to raise it or whether you're better off just keeping up a front I don't know if you've got any advice for people in that situation I think I've probably run both paths so I've definitely kept up a front for like a very long time and not talked about it and it, but you become another one of those statistics right of five plus years or in my case it was two years and even that was a long time and you kind of slide down the scale of well-being until you get to a point where it's so severe that you can't do anything but talk about it but it is a difficult conversation to broach, depending on your workplace culture particularly. Of course, it's one that you can engage in, not just in the workplace. You start off by talking to your GP about it, talking to your significant other about it, talking to your friends about it. And I think that's can be, that can be a, a helpful first step before you engage in talking about it in a workplace context, which can be more difficult because you've got this complex tie between my livelihood comes from here, but also this is really affecting my livelihood in a broader sense. Yes, absolutely. It's important to be pragmatic, I think. Taking care of yourself, there are different ways to go about that, essentially. Exactly, and I'd practice those conversations. And those conversations could be hard too, even with significant others. I don't think I told my girlfriend, for example, for a year and a half, where I was like, I think this is actually a problem. I, I, think, I, I think I need to do something about this. And having the conversations in safe, safe environments first, and then you need, to, that you need to bring it to the workplace, because that's where you spend a lot of your time, as you were talking about the number of hours we spend at work, which is a bit scary. But <laughs> you, you can have those conversations outside work first with your GP and start to engage there but ultimately you need to fight that battle in the workplace too because that's where a lot of mental health conditions arise as well and work provides a lot of value to us Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be watching you know daytime tv all day rather than engaging in software problems but we need to recognize the work the value provides that it gives us you know it sustains us both in terms of monetary concerns but also in terms of our growth and our mental well-being and feeling like we're providing value to society we need to recognize that we're getting that from work I mean we need to realize that because of that we need to engage in the mental health conversation at work if it's affecting our ability to enjoy those things but one of the other things that you get from the work environment is that social interaction that actually you know even worse than watching daytime television is being on your own and literally not engaging with other human beings that's you know not a path to wellness yeah it's, it's interesting and the research project i did that was on digital mental health care solutions one of the kind of sections of mental health care solution or categorizations if you will was mental health platforms where people were sharing their mental health conditions things like big white wall or mine's platform called ellie friends where people discuss mental health conditions they've experienced as a way of finding a community in that space just like how we find community so important in sport or at work or or in any other domain but as you say the social aspect is so important in in kind of improving our mental health and getting self-perspective because the voice in your head that can be a cause of a lot of mental health concerns if, if, if gone unchecked 
it's very easy to find perspective for other people of that voice very hard for you to do it yourself and that's why one of the kind of mantras in mental health is how would you treat your you know what would you talk to your best friend about that issue like you know you wouldn't say to your best friend oh that presentation you did at work sounds like it was terrible or any of those kind of like really mean like critic in your head comments that that come out and can be the kind of start of a negative thought spiral so I think that social aspect is really important and gives you a lot of perspective and you can get a lot of that from work and if you can engage with your managers, your staff about mental health, it can be a huge boon as well. I would definitely say that since experiencing a mental health condition, going through it and coming out the back of it, I see it as a net positive now, which is quite not something I would have thought in the moment where I was kind of suffering through anxiety and I felt like, oh, I can't live my life properly because I'm experiencing this kind of day-to-day annoyance with anxiety and frustration at myself that I can't just get on with normal things as I'd want to. So I think it's a net positive overall for me because when I look at it and when I start to manage other people, I can instantly understand from a point of empathy what they're going through, not because they necessarily have a mental health condition, but because everyone has mental health. When I see someone struggle to do a task and they're struggling through it and I can say, oh yeah, you know, the critic in your head is definitely being like, oh, you could have done that better or this is taking a bit longer than you might have thought it to, thought it to take. And to, be, and to notice that up front and to kind of notice that their breathing's quickened or they're sighing or whatever mental health thing that I'm now aware of and to, and to be able to have that empathy and be like, it's okay if, if you're, you're finding this hard and you're struggling through it. Like we're learning together and part of my role here is to make sure you can perform at your best. And part of people performing at their best is having mental health and tip-top conditions. So that net positive also is a huge part of the kind of empathy that I feel for others and that I'm able to manage with when I'm in those positions. Even in terms of upwards management, you know, you could be managed by someone and you can see the stress they're undergoing and they're not quite getting to you and the meetings are being delayed. And if you can come to that point from a point of empathy where you realise that they're going through a lot and you can engage on that topic, then that can be quite powerful as well. Mm, that's fantastic. And you mentioned there about the research project that you did around technology. So what are the ways that we can use technology to help us with mental health in the workplace? It depends on the scale of your workplace, but I think technology is a, a powerful part of an overall holistic well-being initiative. So it's not the whole solution, but it is part of the solution. Yeah, de- definitely not the whole solution. I think that, you know, as a, as a software developer, I think the thing with technology <laughs> is always that it needs to solve a real business problem and it needs everything that kind of sits around it for it to really provide traction and gain traction in a business and be used effectively. But yeah, it's part of it's part of the solution to that problem. And what's the solution that makes best sense for your business is very workplace dependent. And it needs to be really tailored to the scale of your workplace, the culture of your workplace, the size. And one of the interesting things I've talked to um, different people about when I've, in this project uh, after I completed it was exactly that. So I met, I met with the vice chair of the police federation a couple of weeks ago and was trying to give him some advice based on the project that I'd done. And he had some questions about uh, looking at workplace solutions in the context of the police force and mental health. And that was a really interesting conversation to have because the police force is a very different workplace to a lot of workplaces. They deal with a lot of stresses that are frequent and uh, can be quite extreme. So there's a whole other tact and approach that had to be taken in that context versus the context of the General Medical Council, which I spoke to uh, briefly as well um, and kind of followed up with. That tailoring to the workplace is really important. I think in general, there are three core categories for workplace mental health solutions that I discovered as part of this fellowship. The first one are portals, gateways and marketplaces. And these are the things that people are probably already using anyway. You know, you're logging onto the mental health at work gateway, which gives you access to a whole range of mental health resources that are workplace focused, depending on what your workplace is 
in terms of culture and size. And there are gateways to other resources, things like mental health foundation resources or mine resources. Those are kind of the broad educational aspects that we talked about earlier that can be really helpful to engage with your workplace in. The second core set of solutions are comprehensive wellbeing platforms. And these are the ones that probably fit for more workplaces, for a lot of workplaces, depending on on size, but probably most beneficial for really large workplaces that struggle to traction mental health initiatives across a huge number of employees. And these can be things like uh, Unmind or Silver Cloud, where they're aiming to provide all three elements of that mental health journey that we talked about earlier, an aspect of education and signposting within the platform, screening tools and diagnostic tools within the platform, and then care delivery port, uh, forms, things like mindfulness or digitized cognitive behavioral therapy, or in some cases, referral points to uh, teletherapy. You know, that's, that can be a, a really useful platform for all kinds of different organizations of different sizes. And then finally, we have teletherapy applications themselves, which are distinctly care delivery platforms, where instead of having a traditional talking therapy, where you go in person to a one hour appointment once a week, it can be phone, it can be text chat, it can be in person, any combination of those that's best uh, for staff. And I think that that can help tailor to different workplaces as well, depending on where you're at. And of course, teletherapy solutions are more expensive. Comprehensive wellbeing platforms are more comprehensive, the more expensive it is. There's all these trade-offs that must be considered uh, depending on specific workplaces. And you mentioned about the things that need to be done around the edge of the technology. So just buying a platform is not necessarily going to give you the benefit you need. What, what can you do to help people to engage with it and to make sure they're using it? So in terms of engaging with a technology solution in a workplace context, when I was doing the research and I was talking to these founders that had uh, enacted these mental health care solutions in workplaces, uh, they identified three core areas to really make the technology come alive and be used and utilised and have an impact in workplaces. The first was that the solution needs to be championed at all different levels of the organisation. One thing that was really powerful was having content from executives within the platform. So, for example, say you log on to your workplace wellbeing platform and you see that your CEO has a video talking about an experience they had with mental health or maybe a line manager of yours or those kind of senior leaders. Because the weird reality in workplaces is that business leaders are often perceived as kind of celebrities. Everyone knows their names. Everyone knows what's going on with them. People are kind of seeing them present at different events and they kind of have that celebrity star power within a workplace context. So I think that executive level engagement is really important. And then also that grassroots engagement to, to meet it from the bottom as well and people having, uh, in, being engaged in mental health having mental health champions that, that care about mental health and are talking about these resources and are providing points of contact for people on mental health. And I think that combination of being, uh, of being champion in both at, at higher and other levels can be really powerful. I think secondly, to make these workplace solutions work, it's really important to position them carefully. A lot of the time with mental health, the conversation can quickly become very negative because some of these experiences can be really challenging. But for people to engage on a broader level, uh, workplace solutions and, and initiatives need to lead with well-being and they need to normalise mental health, but not trivialise what can be a really challenging issue for people. I think the terminology really matters when we talk about mental health. If I say uh, mental health concern or I want to be able to perform my best, that sounds very, very different to me saying, I think it's an American term that really bothered me when I was doing the research in the States, which was something like disorder. Yeah, my mental health disorder, things like that. You know, that terminology has a huge impact on whether someone's going to talk about the mental health or not, even though we all have it. 
And um, also the link between being perceived to not be able to do your job. Because you mentioned how energising it is to have executives talking about it. But I think they're fighting this. The higher up you go in an organisation, almost the harder it is for you to talk about it because you don't want to be perceived as weak. And it becomes even more important to show that you're doing a good job. And if this isn't in line with how that's perceived in your company, then I think it's personally risky for people to do that. Yeah, it certainly feels person. It can feel personally risky, and and that's a really challenging aspect of the stigma that we often talk about in in mental health. And as you say, those executives being engaged can be quite challenging for them personally. So I think when it comes to executives engaging in, in mental health and thinking about that, it's interesting how we've gone to a point where you know we'd frequently see executives burning out, and now at some really large organisations, you have kind of pit stop stop teams sitting around executives and you've got a nutritionist and you've got a coach and you've got a psychologist and it's funny how that in the sports environment we can talk very openly about psychology and that's a really performance orientated industry in fact it's one of the most meritocratic either you hit that tennis ball and it goes in or it doesn't and then suddenly having a psychologist and having a coach and having these different people that are essentially you know they're providing psychological support in some form or another is totally fine and then in a workplace context it's not you know, when everyone found out that Andy Murray had a sports psychologist and he was helping him work through things, or Bradley Wiggins had that sports psychologist as well that wrote The Chimp Paradox, no one bats an eyelid. And yet executives in business are held to a different level of account. And I have no idea why, mm. other than kind of sort of stigma and cultural reasons. But if we're saying in an industry where performance matters the most, it's meritocratic, sports psychologists can be really helpful then of course some level of kind of psychological understanding and engagement in a business context will also provide help and support uh, and help people perform at their best. And in some instances, being open, open about mental health can be very empowering for executives because suddenly you've got a quarter of people or more because sibling, you know, spouses, siblings, uh, whoever are engaged in mental health or have experienced mental health, suddenly you're speaking on a very personal level to a huge amount of your staff. And no executive is going to, you know, be able to perform without staff members because ultimately they're the people turning the handles in different parts of your business. So I think whilst it can be risky, it can be hugely empowering for that executive that does talk out or talk out about it because suddenly it's engaging for a huge number of their staff. Mm. And just finally, I think that there's a lot of discussion going on at the moment about technology and whether it's actually quite obviously there are benefits, but is it also quite alienating to us as people? And here we're talking about technology solutions and possibly AI solutions. I know you mentioned chatbots, you know, for people to talk to. Is this something where at the end of the day, support really needs to be delivered via human beings or is that changing? It's interesting because as part of digital mental health care solutions, there's a clear divide between solutions that have a human in the loop, which means like a person involved in the software somewhere, you know, you're connecting to a therapist. Yes, it's teletherapy, but there's a real person at the end of the phone versus solutions that don't have a human in the loop, but therefore are more cost effective. Things like, you know, one big area that is kind of AI focused is chatbots. And being able to go back and forth with a, with a bot about how you're feeling and how, interestingly, people engage more positively with that than a real person. So I think, as anything, there's a balance. But one thing to watch out for is that if a human is in the loop as part of a piece of software, um, then, of course, it's not as scalable as a pure technology-focused platform. I think the answer is probably for mild to moderate conditions. That doesn't, you know, a human doesn't necessarily need to be involved at that point. 
but as you get more severe you know you get as you move along the spectrum and people are experiencing things to a greater level in terms of their mental health then it can make sense to have a human kind of be a part of the loop at that stage you don't need a human to help you read through mental health resources and to do screening with you necessarily but when it comes to you know when it comes to delivering care different things can really help different people I think the bottom line really is that we know in mental health that one size never fits all. For some people, the best form of mental health support can be one-on-one talk with a therapist, be it in in person or on the phone. For other people, it can be engaging with a chatbot. For other people, it can be mindfulness. For other people, it can be digitized cognitive behavioral therapy. What's more important than saying yes a person, no a person, or this solution versus this solution is providing a large range of different varying access points and providing people coaching and support between those access points. Because you know, we know that 30% of first treatment won't work for people, but they need to keep trying, right? You don't want to be disheartened by that first experience. So I think the, the kind of broader answer is having more options and being able to move between them and see what works for you. Thank you so much, Marcus. I've really enjoyed this chat. Thanks very much, Zoe. And thanks to you for listening. Follow the conversation and tweet us your thoughts and comments on the topic at Software UK. Thank you very much.